0: All right, so this morning uh, and next week, we're going to take a break from our study in Acts. Um, I know the email said something different, but God is good and He's able to uh, point me in the right direction, thankfully. But uh, this morning we're going to be in uh, the Gospel of John. But the title of today's message is The King of Israel. The King of Israel. As you know, it's Palm Sunday. Um, People around the world celebrate uh, the day that Jesus, as we're going to read about, entered into uh, Jerusalem uh, before the Passover. But uh, who's the king of Israel right now? Well, Israel doesn't have a king; they have a prime minister, and his name is Benjamin Netanyahu, and he's been their prime minister since 2009. Um, uh, he's pretty famous. Israel has had some pretty famous prime ministers in the past, but he's not the king. He's not the absolute king. People can vote him out. Uh, there can be a change in government there, and. Uh, Uh, he could easily not be the prime minister anymore. Uh, But usually when a king shows up or someone important uh, comes to town, you roll out the red carpet for them, right? We have that that, uh, saying, hey, they rolled out the red carpet for me when I showed up at such and such. Um, I've never had that happen. Maybe you've had that happen, but no red carpet. And that's okay because I'm not very important. But, uh, you know, we have the term of VIP, very important person. You know, they have the VIP parking, VIP concierge service. You know, people who are uh, you know, are wealthy tend to get a lot of VIP services. They go to the airport, they have a special entrance, they bypass um, you know, certain security and things like that. People send them things to try and get them to promote them or to um, be a soundbite for them. But maybe you've seen it at work even where we're, when we have our clients come in, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but we go all out for them. We put a sign out saying, welcome, you're here. We get food for them things of this nature and make sure that, uh, you know, that the place looks nice. Um, but when you and I show up to work, there's no sign out front that says, welcome Johnny. Welcome Sue. Welcome Gus. Welcome Shaunice," Welcome Tim. Welcome Ashley to say, Hey, you know, where are you? You're two minutes late. (laughs) You know, there's no big uh, red carpet. Usually when we get to work, uh, but really, I think a lot of these things show where we, what we value and, and where our hearts are at. Because you know? what do we value? Well, we put it out before important people when they come. When someone comes over, usually uh, you, know, you put out food or you put out something or you want to make sure that they're comfortable uh, that they're made. You know, we didn't put out the fancy china today, but sometimes if you have a nice meal and you have people over, you're going to put, put out um, the nicest things. Uh, but why really? You know, is it just to get their attention? Is, the, is it to make them think that you're more well-off than you are? Maybe it's to get their business because they have money to offer you. Maybe they can buy your things. You're going to put out stuff. Um, maybe it's just because they're rich. Maybe it's just because they're wealthy. We feel like there's this need to do so. Um or maybe it's because they deserve it. You know, maybe you're very thankful for something that someone's done in your life. Maybe it's a friend or a family member who's who's there for you, and you want to invite them over for dinner. You can't really do much for them, but you want to have them over for dinner because you're grateful and you want to show them uh, how much you think they're worth. You know, maybe when you're going on a date early on in a relationship, you go out, you bring them out to a steak dinner. You know, you you say order whatever you want on the menu, etc., etc. But then maybe down the line, it's well make sure we split that appetizer and did you bring the coupon? You know, there's a little bit of a difference going on there because you've already won them, uh, so to speak. Uh, But really, you know, what's what's our motive in all these things? And even more than that, as we'll see today, what's our motive to worship? What's our motive to worship? Is it just... Uh, Motions for selfish motive. Do we just show up to church or show up in the presence of God and raise our hands or sing or read our Bible just for the motion? Just to say, hey, yeah, God, I'm still doing this Christian thing. I'm still going through the motions. You're still God. I'm still worshiping you. Bless me. Or is it truly laying down something in worship? When we show up in worship, are we truly laying down something that's of worth before the Lord? Do we still roll out the red carpet for the Lord today as we did the days we first got saved? Um, and that's, I think, a constant struggle in our lives as Christians. There's going to be days when we're all to red carpet for the Lord. And there's going to be days when there's not even room for him in our lives, if we're honest. But before we get to the, the events of Palm Sunday, we have to ask, who is Jesus? Who is this man that we're going to look at that, that rides in on the donkey? Well, I think the Gospel of John does a very good job of introducing him. And you don't have to turn there, but it's John 1. 1-5 and 16-18. through 18. And John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And we'll skip down to verse uh, 16. And it says, And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of his father, he has declared him. You know, this man that we're looking at, Jesus, really is God in the flesh. He's the living word of God. When God spoke, it's really Jesus. Jesus is the word. It's like this concept that I can't quite get out there other than the fact that He's the Word of God. If you want to see the invisible attributes of God, you look at the visible image, Jesus. Just as you and I, maybe in an oversimplified example, might have a thought or an emotion or a perspective on something, I'll never know that until you say it. And you'll never know what I'm thinking until I say it. You might be able to guess it by maybe my behavior or my action, but until I come out and say it, you're probably not going to hear it. And the same way, that's the same thing with the Lord, is that, yeah, until we've seen Jesus we haven't seen the fullness of the father. Yeah. We can look around at creation. Yes. We can get an idea of what perhaps he's saying, but until we have his word, Jesus in our lives, we're not going to totally understand where God is coming from on things. And we see that from people who, who say they believe in God or say they believe God is God, but they don't really have that relationship with Jesus. A lot of times they have crooked views of scripture that, you know, we say that, Oh, God is all loving. And how could he do this? Um, But really, Jesus is the visible image of God. And that Jesus, this man, was 100% man, but also 100% God. He was God in the flesh. And Psalm 124.8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That this man who's riding in on a donkey is not just a man again, but he's the maker of heaven and earth. That he's the Lord over everything, over every particle in the universe, over every person, past, present, and future, over every spiritual power. He's Lord of all. He's not just some guys we're going to see coming in, maybe who's uh, who the people thought would be somebody else, but he is Lord of everything. He's king of all. And Lord, again, as we get into your word, we ask that you would reveal uh, yourself to us. God, you're the living word of God, and this is your word that you've given to us. It, uh, it's the things that you wanted us to hear and know and have written down that we might remember and know and understand and come to know you. So God, would you, by your spirit this morning, reveal to us even more and help us know you even better because God if we go through life not knowing you God we've really uh, missed the point and missed the boat so God may you just lift us up this morning as we lift you up and we give you our attention and our hearts and our minds and may we roll out the red carpet for you so to speak in Jesus name amen so let's turn to uh, John chapter 12 John chapter 12 a couple pages to the right and we're going to read the first 8 verses together and then we'll uh We'll stop there for a moment. John 12, verse 1 says Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, and that's a city, not a person, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, (coughs) whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have Always, We think, well, hey, this isn't Palm, a typical Palm Sunday scripture to read. Well, we're going to get to the more typical Palm Sunday scripture. But I think it's important to see where Jesus was coming from, and where Jesus was going, and the events that were leading up to uh, Palm Sunday. But we see here that it was six days before the Passover that he'd come in. It was the weekend. The Passover is about to start the next week. And he came to spend uh, this time with those who were close to him, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, but it says that Lazarus, who had been dead, you know, what a thing to be said about somebody. What a thing to be said about you. You know, uh, Tim, who had been dead, <laughs> is now sitting next to Jesus and eating. You know, that's not something that we hear uh, too often. But what a thing, you know, and is that, is that our claim to fame? You know, being raised from the dead? Um, you know, it, when people know of us, do they know that we were raised from the dead even? Uh, probably not, because I don't think you or I in this room were ever actually physically dead and raised back. But spiritually, we have been if we know the Lord. But that begs the question, you know, um, is it our testimony or our talent that brings our fame? Is it the testimony that Jesus has raised us from the dead that brings us fame? That when we show up somewhere, people hear about us, they go, oh, that person is special because of Jesus? Or is that person special because they're talented somehow, because they're a famous artist or a famous musician or a famous Uh, whatever the case may be, because of some talents given to us. And not that God doesn't give us talents to use for his name, and not that those things are important, but only one is going to last. Only one is going to last. It's your testimony, knowing Jesus, that's going to get you into heaven and be eternity, not what you've done for him or what you do for him, but, or even for yourself, but it's your testimony. And that's Lazarus's claim to fame. Lazarus is just some dude who was friends with Jesus, but he died Jesus raised him from the dead. As we'll see here, he's pretty much a spectacle in his community because of what the Lord did uh, in his life and his life literally. But they said they made him a supper. They made Jesus a supper. And I love this because Jesus loved to have a meal. I'm not saying that Jesus was a glutton, but that he loved to spend time with and fellowship with the people around him and that he was close with. He loved to come in, hang out, to talk to listen to share about God but to have a meal and to do these real things with people that God in the flesh loved to do these things that well in a sense food is what it sustains your flesh it keeps your body living and he loved to 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 get around and communicate and have a contact point for these people and I like we talked about before and it's pretty obvious you know when you go out to eat, you want to go out to eat with people you're friends with, or you want to get to know. You know, you generally don't go out to eat with your enemies, you know, or at work, you wanna eat with the people that you're friends with. It's uh, it's always kinda of awkward when you when you're the new person and you don't know anyone and, and you're there. But that was not Jesus here. He wanted to come and, and fellowship with his uh, people who were close with him, his friends. Um But that you know, it says that Martha served, but Lazarus sat at the table. You know that there was this intimacy i believe uh through that resurrection that yeah jesus lazarus was one of jesus's best friends uh, but i don't know that lazarus would want to be anywhere else after being resurrected from the dead by jesus i'd want to sit close to him as well too um you know we have this idea of sitting and serving mary versus martha that i'm sure we're all familiar with but i think when our lives are truly raised from the dead sitting and fellowshipping with jesus becomes the most important thing more than doing anything for him. Yeah, when we get saved, a lot of times we get into, we want to serve. We want, Lord, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Can I uh, do this at the church? Can I do this for my family? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I think that that's a great heart to have. I think that that is one of the, the evidences, the fruit of salvation is saying that, yeah, you've done so much for me, God. I know I can't pay you back, but I want to do these things for you. But I think even deeper than that, it comes down to the point of, Lord, I want to do all these things for you, but I know that the most important thing is sitting with you and fellowshipping with you and getting to know you better, that there's this uh, deeper intimacy there. I'm not saying Martha was doing anything wrong. Someone had to cook the meal. You know, I mean, maybe they could have ordered from P.F. Chang's or Panera Bread, but (coughs) Martha was the one cooking here. And uh, you think of like a presidential feast where you've been invited to the table. Um, you know, would you rather sit at the table at a presidential feast than be the the person serving and waiting the tables? You know, again, not that it, it would probably still be awesome to be someone involved in those things and to be a secret service man or someone who uh, cooks the meals for the president or things of this nature because you're just involved in it all and that's kind of cool. Uh, but how much more important would you be, you know, than someone who's a guest at the table? You know, if they're sitting down with world leaders. The world leaders are going to be at the table. They can get anyone else they want to cook the meal, but there's only one world leader that they want to meet with, per se. That's the same thing with the Lord, I think. You know, God wants us to sit at the table with Him. God wants us to be the important people at His feast. We talk about heaven being a feast and how important it is to sit there with Him. Um, You know, you think about the prodigal, you know, understanding His failure. He would rather be a servant in His Father's house than anywhere else. You know, and I can remember... uh, having a dream and i'm not saying this dream was heaven but to me in a sense it was where um i remember i was sweeping up a corner of a, a room and there was light and there were singing and I knew it. I'm not saying it was heaven, but to me it was like, man, this is sort of the, the way I was feeling lately. It was, man, I, I, if this is all I get of heaven, of just sweeping up a, a corner of a room. It would totally be worth it. I think that's the same thing. I think that's your heart as well. Man, if we go to heaven, even if we're stuck there in some room sweeping up a little corner and we just hear the singing off in a distance, how awesome would that be? And I know that God wants so much more than that uh, for any of us. But we see here uh, this oil of spikenard. Uh, you know, Judas says, hey, it's worth you know, 300 denarii, that it's worth a year's wages. You spent all our money on this. And essentially, the comment says that spices and ointments were often used as an investment because they occupied a small space, were portable, and were easily negotiable in the open market, that this was sort of your nest egg, your savings, your 401k, anything that you kind of have and you keep with you. Um, you know, not only is it a, a great fragrance and a perfume and a wealthy thing, but it's also something that, you know, hey, when it comes down to it, you've got this wealth that you can barter for and trade with. But a commentary says, you know, um, that Mary's gift was remarkably unselfconscious. Not only did she give the gift of the expensive oil, but she also wiped his feet with her hair. And This means that she let her down her hair in public, and apparently that was something that Jewish women would rarely, if ever, do. That not only did she give something that was costly, but she also didn't care for her own dignity in the act. She was more concerned about this intimate act with Jesus and uh, washing his feet with this spikely—I'm uh, sorry—with this costly oil, this uh, oil of spikenard, this spice. Um, But, you know, the emotion there, I think, could be love. That she loved the Lord, and not in some strange way, but in a holy way. Man, I know who you are. I know what you've done for my family and my brother. I know what you've done for me and what you're going to do for me. And I love you, and I want to show that to you. And as Jesus said, you know, her motive was his burial. That she did this for the day of my burial. And the worship was her finances, her security, her dignity. She poured it all out at Jesus' feet because she knew how much he was worth. And the position was at his feet again. It was intimate. It was prostrate. It was down. It was low uh, before him, you know, just as you might uh, kneel before a king or bow before someone of importance uh, in another culture. But the price to her, it didn't matter because she knew the worth of Jesus. These things weren't a concern to her. They weren't a concern to her because she knew how much Jesus was worth. She knew that he wasn't just a man, that he was a king and that he was God, and that anything that she had. Um, couldn't compare to the worth of being close with him and, and worshiping him. But we see here Judas's reaction. You know, his motive was financial gain. It says that he's a thief; that he was more concerned about the money, and he used the excuse of feeding the poor. Oh yeah, we've got to have some social justice, and we've got to redistribute the wealth here. You know, I can't believe she's wasting all this when we give it to the poor. And yeah, those words sound good, but what was his heart? His heart was, hey, you know, every two pennies that come in, I take one penny, and you know, he's watching over the money box, but he's pilfering it. Um, but it's interesting that Jesus says that this was the day of his burial. And really, you know, he didn't get buried that day. It would still be a week before you go to the cross. But even though it was still a week out, it was time. It was time. We read in the scriptures about a lot of times when Jesus was at the wedding feast and, uh, he says, it's not time yet. His brothers say reveal himself and he goes, it's not time yet. But the time had come for it to be revealed who Jesus truly was, um, at the cross. And again, feeding a few people temporarily, that's a good thing, but it had no match the importance of what Jesus was about to go do uh, for all people, rich and poor. It was more important that he would go to the cross and he would be buried and raised again than, than a few people would have a meal for a few days. But Let's go on. Let's read 9 through 11 and it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. We see that a great many Jews came to see Jesus, but also Lazarus, the also Lazarus there. That it was, was a spectacle for some. I'm sure some people came and say, hey, Lazarus was dead. Jesus rose him, rose him up. He's alive again. Let's go check him out. Let's go poke him and see just how alive he is. Let's go watch how he eats, see if he does anything different. I mean, I think I might feel the same way, you know. If I heard that, I might go on to check that out. You know, uh, a coworker was going to New York uh, the other weekend for the first time. And someone at work suggested they go to the wax museum or like Ripley's, believe it or not, you know, this weird spectacle sideshow to go see uh, what it was all about. Um, but really, you know, maybe that's the way some people thought of Lazarus, that he was just some sideshow, some spectacles, another miracle to go check out. But I think for others, probably more people, he was a sign that, hey, wow, Jesus has power. This is something important. We've never seen someone come back from the dead like this. Um, Let's go take a look at that. You know, we had heard about other people being healed and uh, Jesus healing people and uh, some of the prophets in the Old Testament. But to see this, first and foremost, is a pretty big deal. I think for others, he was a savior for all. That, yeah, this is Jesus. He has the power over death. Let's go see him. Let's go see what he's doing. Let's go see the work that he's done. But again, we see the chief priests, and seriously, here we go again with the chief priests. What do they say? They want to put Lazarus to what? To death. To death. Hello? (laughs) Jesus just rose him from the dead. And what's your plan? You're going to kill him again? You don't think Jesus could just raise him back up again? You don't think that, you know, it's like that clown, that, that clown toy that you punch and it falls over and it comes back up? You know, you don't think Jesus has the power to bring Lazarus back? You know, he died at once. You know, what's the problem with him bringing it back again? I feel like it would probably be easier a second time, right? But that was their plan again. That was their plan, you know, uh, to put, put him to death, to put him to death. And I think that the point here is that these guys are really fighting against eternal life. They wanted to wipe out any proof that Jesus had power over death. They wanted to wipe out any reason for people to turn to Jesus. Uh, you know, to fight against any authority but theirs, to put down this work of God that God was doing. But it was keeping people captive to an earthly kingdom. These guys ruled an earthly kingdom. They had control over the spiritual system. They had control, in a sense, over uh, the people's political system, even though they were kind of under Rome politically. They still had a control over the the culture um, in Israel. And they didn't want people turning to Jesus. And that's exactly what Lazarus' resurrection was doing. People were saying, he rose Lazarus from the dead. This guy must be who he says he is. And they were turning to him and to the authority of God. And I think that's because the resurrection is a window into another world entirely that when we see the resurrection, it's unlike anything else and it reveals God in ways unlike anything else. It reveals that God has a kingdom with no end, that God's kingdom is not bound by earthly human constraints. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall based on their their leaders, based on the amount of their armies, the amount of life that is still left in a person. But when someone dies, well, the kingdom usually fades with it. But Jesus is showing here That God's kingdom has no end and that Jesus is a part of God's real kingdom and that these guys weren't and they didn't want anything to do with that. And Lazarus' resurrection was the reason many people turned to Jesus. When you see the resurrection for what it really is, you can't help but believe You know, you see resurrection, as we talked about last week with Paul and uh, Mars Hill. People mocked it, and they shut him down. As soon as he started talking about the resurrection, they didn't want anything to do with it. They said, no, 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 we can't handle this. This isn't what we believe. We don't want to do with it. But when we see resurrection actually happen in someone's life like that, you just can't deny it. You can't deny it. You can try to deny it, but what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to kill Lazarus again to get rid of the proof of it. Um, but he's, when someone died, he's walking around and they're healthy and fine and they were dead for a couple days and they came out of the grave, you can't really deny that anymore. There's, you know, you can ignore it, but it still exists. It's still fact, but what's going to get people saved around us. What's going to get people saved around you? I mean, is it a fun atmosphere? Is it coming to a church and there's fancy lights and fancy things going on? Well, no, that, that might help. Maybe that makes them feel more comfortable and more willing to receive the message But that's not what really saves them. Maybe, uh, you know, it's certainly not being cool or understanding the culture. You know, we saw Paul last week. He quoted one of their their poets. He was out in there. He didn't try and distance himself from their culture. He engaged their culture and they denied him as soon as he started talking about the meat and potatoes of the message. Um, You know, you're only going to keep the culture with things that the culture likes. And so you're probably going to have to sacrifice the gospel and that's not going to save anybody. But it's also not being a good person. Good works is not what's going to save people. When they see you being a good person, that's not really going to save them. They say, oh, he's a good person. And oh, I can never be that good. I don't know how you're that good. I'm just going to keep doing my life because I can't attain to that. You know, it's not social justice. It's not feeding the poor. That's not going to bring people to know God. I mean, it's a good window. You want to go out and share the gospel and bring sandwiches or uh, ministries that help children who are in poverty and they provide for their needs, but also give them the gospel? Yeah, that's that's an open door. That's an opportunity. But just the act of feeding people in and of itself is not going to bring people uh, to Jesus. They're just going to come back and come for seconds and soup and continue coming there. And again, one day they will die, and they will die permanently if they don't have eternal life. But what's really going to get people saved around us is the resurrected life. When people see a life that's really changed, really resurrected, has the power of God in them that's not the power of a 12-step program, they're going to get saved. They're going to turn. And even if they don't, even if they mock or even if they just look at it like it's a spectacle, um, that's the way they're going to get saved is through the gospel um, and seeing that gospel lived out in in a real life. But I think that the extent of the resurrection Um, of our lives is the extent that people will see God, you know, again, good works uh, for their own motives will only point people to you and to me and make those people feel inferior and unloved in a sense and unable to attain a salvation that it appears that you've attained by your good works. Oh, look at how he goes to church every week. He does this every week. He's just a good person. Um, If they don't understand that the reason why you do these things, if they don't see the difference in your life, because, um, and that's what leads to these things. Or even on the flip side of that, where if we're abusing grace and not living the resurrected life, um, it only make people think that salvation is worthless. They'll say, you preach the message all day long, but your life is no different. Your life isn't resurrected. They're not going to use that term, but that's what they're going to see is that your life is dead and just as dead as theirs, even though you preach life. Well, they're not going to come to God and see that. But what's going to happen is that if we live a resurrected life, if we're simply at the table with Jesus and we're hanging out with Jesus and we're spending time with him, they're going to see that, hey, he's not even doing anything, but his life is different. He's not even that special or that great of a person, but his life is different. There's something different about him, and I can't put my finger on it. And a lot of people will say that, and that's the resurrection. That's the life of God in them. That, that you know They're either going to love Jesus and follow him, or they're going to hate you and persecute you. This isn't a guarantee that people are going to like you, but it's a guarantee that uh, people are going to see something and react to something. And at that point, it's, it's really up to them in their heart. But the resurrection is the basis um, to believe in Jesus. You know, otherwise what? Jesus made a bunch of claims and not all would have come true. You know, he claimed to tear down this temple and raise it again in three days. If he didn't come back to the life, people would say, well, he didn't come back. The temple didn't come back. What do you mean by that? You know, there'd be no um, fruit from that. You know, he healed some people. But at the end of the day, all those people died. So what does that mean about him? He didn't have the ultimate power over death. He could just make people better. That's nice, but it doesn't do much in the long run. But he also he claimed to be God, but he must not be because God can't stay dead. If this man was really God, then how come he's in a grave somewhere? How come he's dead just like the rest of us? And the reason is the resurrection. The reason is the resurrection. You know, 1 Corinthians fifteen 19, we've read this together before. Paul says, if, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. That if this life is the only life that has hope in Jesus, then it's pitiable. Because if we're all just going to die at the end of the day, What's the point? But the point is, is that we have hope in Jesus in this life and in the next because there is a resurrection from the dead, from those who believe to heaven and those who don't believe um, to perdition. But Let's go on and read 12 through 19. I'm sorry, Acts John twelve twelve. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel." Uh, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, "Fear not, daughter of Zion; behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt." His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were uh, with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Uh, in verse 12 here, we see that the branches of the palm trees, you know, palm trees apparently were a symbol of Jewish nationalism since the time of the Maccabees. Uh, this was a patriotic rally and the crowds looked to Jesus as a political and national savior, but not a spiritual savior, says the commentary, that when they brought out these palm trees, it wasn't just because of, you know, there were palms around and this was the only thing that they had, but it had a significance to them and political significance that, hey, here comes our Messiah. Let's, Let's get out the red, white, and blue and wave the flags. Let's put up our bald eagles and all our, uh, you know, that would be if it was in America, putting in all our patriotic symbols. But I think also, you know, in a sense, it was also common. It was what was around them. It didn't really cost them. You know, it was probably somebody else's palm tree that they ripped the palm fronds off, you know, on that street. Uh, But, you know, you think of maybe picking flowers for your loved one on the path up to their front door. You know, it's not so romantic when they realize that you pick the flowers on the path coming up. But I think that some here probably were genuinely worshiping their incoming king, that they knew who Jesus was, and we saw that there were people among them uh, who saw all the things that he did with Lazarus and, and believed in Jesus and the resurrection. So I believe that there were those there who were genuinely worshiping him, that not everyone who was here would be the people turning on him the next week. But I think some there probably just had the motive of wanting political freedoms or gains or power. You know, that when they saw Jesus coming, they're like, all right, Rome's on the way out, Jesus is on the way in, Herod is not been a great king. We're going to get a new king and he's going to take care of us now. Um, I think others probably were fickle and would turn on him when, uh, when their idea of, of his political promise of being a king uh, wasn't fulfilled in their time when he'd be dead in a week and they would turn and they would run. But others certainly would be faithful. I guarantee others would be faithful who were there worshiping him. But they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. And that word Hosanna, it, it's, it could mean save now save now, save now, come in now, king, you're our king, we anoint you, be our king, we've cleared out the red carpet for you, come rule us, free us from Rome, Uh, don't let it be any longer, you know, and again, it shows that their expectation of him, that uh, he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel, that they knew he was the king of Israel, we saw Pilate would say, put on the placard that this was the king of Israel, they knew he was the king, but perhaps they had a different expectation of him there. You know, because he came in riding a donkey, and that's that's symbolic of peace, not war. You know, if he came in on a horse, that'd be uh, like riding in on a tank. But he, you know, he came in on a on a Ford Pinto. You know, this little car that's uh, just bringing him into town, so to speak. He's not, you're not very intimidated by it. He's coming in peace. Um, but the second coming, when he's coming back to rule and reign. As when he's coming on a horse in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I'm sure we've read this together too, but he says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one could know except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with that he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords that this is Jesus coming back to physically reign on earth, to spiritually reign over everything. But here we see coming in showing a sign of peace. Say, Hey, I'm coming to bring peace to you, peace between God and you. But the earthly kingdom, in a physical sense, is not going to come until later, even though they expected just a physical kingdom then. You know, but he was the king of Israel. They wanted an earthly king. And I, I guarantee someone would be disappointed that his earthly reign began here spiritually and not practically. You know, people being freed from sin and death and judgment, I believe, is the beginning of a sense of God's kingdom on earth. That Because you and I are saved, we are God's citizens. This is his kingdom on earth. We get a picture of heaven. We get a picture of the resurrection uh, through our lives and in the church. Um, and that's the beginning of his kingdom. If that didn't happen, we wouldn't be going to his kingdom, uh, his actual kingdom one day. But uh, Jesus fulfills a scripture here in Zechariah nine, 9 about coming in on a donkey. Uh, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You know, the disciples didn't understand this at first. That seems to be a recurring theme with the disciples. They see something going on. Jesus says something. And they don't quite get it right away. And I, I would say that I fall into that camp as well. But it says here that um, when Jesus was glorified, when, when Jesus was glorified, they got these things. So what are you telling me? That he wasn't glorified here? That this wasn't glorifying to Jesus? And in a sense, not really as much as it should have been. You know, yeah, they've got some palm fronds. Yeah, some people came out to meet him. They had a little political parade and, and welcome ceremony for him but it wasn't the full glory of Jesus here. It was, uh, an, uh, an expectation of something else, perhaps. Um, you know, it was temporary political gain versus true worship and eternal kingdom. It's a man on a donkey versus God on the throne. And yeah, they worshiped him here. Yeah. They cried out Hosanna to him. Yeah. The, they, they placed glory on this man, Jesus, who is God, but it wasn't the full picture. It wasn't his real full glory. If Jesus had stopped here, and took a political kingdom, man, that glory was pretty weak, because that would have been the end of it. That would have been the end of it. You know, that's what the enemy offered him. He said, hey, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth if you just, what, worship me? And Jesus said, no way, no way. I'm only going to worship God and him alone. And that's that's it. You know, the enemy always wants us to to fall short and to receive some sort of earthly glory and some sort of earthly reward. But Jesus wants us to uh, press on and reach a heavenly reward, just as he did, just as he wouldn't settle for anything less than what the Father had for him. But people bore witness. You know, conversations were happening that Jesus was more than a political president, that he was a real king of Israel. In the midst of all this going on, there's people sharing the gospel that, yeah, Lazarus is the one uh, who he raised from the dead, and Jesus has power over this. You know, We think of the time uh, before kings, when Israel was ruled by God, but then they've got to be very unhappy with God's ruling in their lives that we want a king like everyone else has around us, like the heathens have around them. And then even a week from now, when they go to uh, uh, crucify him and they bring him for a pilot, what do they say? We have no king, but Caesar, you know, they would shout this probably some of the people in the crowd, at least would shout this less than a week later that the, the crowd worshiped him. But when they didn't get what they want, perhaps they went another way, you know, that they weren't, they didn't see him for who he really was. But it says here at the end that the Pharisees were accomplishing nothing, that the world had gone after him, that even though they tried to stop this, even though they wanted to kill Lazarus again, even though they turned the people away and they were telling them not to believe in Jesus, as we see in Acts later on, they beat the apostles and they try and get people uh, to not believe in Jesus, that no matter what they did, the harder they tried, the world still kept going after him because the truth is truth. And people uh, in hard times love Uh, love the truth sometimes, and they're willing to follow after it no matter what the case. And I think that's the same with you and I, that when we did come to the Lord, when the Lord did find us and bring us to him, that because we know that it's the truth, no matter what happens, we're not going to turn anywhere else. No matter what anyone tells us, we're not going to turn against it. Because you can't fight the truth. You know, eventually the truth is going to come out. You can cover it up. You can fight against it. But when it's the truth, it's going to come out. And Psalm 127, 1 says, The song of his sense, the song of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. And King Solomon knew that no matter all his earthly strength, all his earthly influence, um, and all his earthly works, that if God wasn't the one doing it, um, that there was only vanity. It was only a temporary kingdom. And. God was doing something here, obviously, with Jesus and the disciples, that no matter what earthly authority came against them, what earthly power came against them, even a death penalty, it could not hold him down. You know, and I think of making ourselves better, or a 12-step program, or being a good person, or doing good works, or trying to outweigh the bad with the good, or karma, or tolerance, or political correctness, none of these things have eternal value. None of these things are going to make us any better. Maybe we look better on the outside. Maybe we have an air of spirituality about us, but it's really, it's not the truth. And the power of God uh, will wipe it all away in a second. When we stand before God, none of that stuff is going to have any weight or any measure. Um, You know, I think, in fact, these physical principles that claim to bring us life are, when they're really applied to our lives, only bring us death. Um, You know, but even when it's done in Jesus' name, you know, they're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, King of Israel. They're crying out spiritual things. They're crying out spiritual truth. But their lives haven't been affected by his resurrection yet. I think as we're coming here to a close that God wants to be the king of each of us individually. To raise each of us from the dead like Lazarus to make us living proof of God's power over sin and death. You know, he wants it to be an intimate, personal relationship, not just king of the church and, oh, who are you again? Thanks for coming to heaven, buddy. Oh, you know, you can go sit over there, but that each of us personally, when we come before him, he would know us intimately and be a king of our lives. And that's how his kingdom here on earth is as well, that if we're his subjects, that when the king asks us to do something, when the king Uh, when we're obedient to the king here on earth, guess what? That's God's kingdom reigning. Even in the midst of all these earthly kingdoms, because we're obeying the king of heaven, his kingdom is being carried out on earth. Just think of if there was a a Russian spy here on earth. Yeah, he might, um, in America rather, he might have an American ID that maybe it's fake, maybe it's real. He might have an American job, but really he's obeying orders from another king. Not that we're going to go out and commit treason or anything, but that in a sense, our lives our, our, uh, while we're going to obey the government as, as much as it obeys God, um, uh, we really answer to another power, um, uh, the real power. But I think that you know, Jesus knew that it would take more than a triumphant entry into Jerusalem on a young donkey um, to bring about God's kingdom. It was going to take more than this. It was going to take a violent, horrific death in just a few days. It would take a burial, you know. That's why uh, Mary anointed him; that it was time. It was time for him to go and be buried. But it would also take a resurrection. It would take all of the above. That all of the scripture had to be fulfilled by the word of God. That the the coming, the suffering, the donkey, the death, the resurrection—all that had to be fulfilled, or none of it. Because if God didn't, if he claimed to be the word of God, and he didn't fulfill all of the word of God, well, then he's not the word of God. <laughs> He's just another man, but because he's God, he kept all of God's word and it had to all be fulfilled. The, the kingdom of God, like we you know talked about that, uh, or Jesus said in the garden, when if there's any other way, Lord, you know, let there be, but nevertheless, your will, not my will be done. That all that had to be fulfilled for us to be saved, all that had to be fulfilled for God's kingdom to be placed. that there's not one part that could have been skipped over and, uh, and uh, glossed over for God's kingdom to come. God's kingdom wasn't going to come in by cheating. God's kingdom wasn't going to come in by, you know, miscounting the votes or stacking, you know, getting dead people to vote for him or whatever it was going to take. God's kingdom was only going to come in by one way, and that's through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what is the word of God to us? What is the word of God to us? I believe it's to be resurrected, that God wants us to be resurrected with him, not just to worship him and lay out a red carpet for him and cry Hosanna for whatever motive it is, but really to be like Lazarus and have a life that is, well, we'd all be dead and rotting in a grave, but we're not, so we're sitting at the table with Jesus. Uh, in John fourteen six. Jesus said to Thomas, He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. And there's only one way that Jesus was going to save us, and that's through uh, what we see and what we're going to remember this week through His, uh, his death and his burial and his resurrection amen father we thank you for your word and we thank you even more that god you are the word of god that you are our blessing that god uh you are the one that we can come to and that lord you want us to come to you so god i pray this week you'd you'd help us come to you with everything and lord that we would th- even this week even if the past couple months or years or whatever we've been in a rut god would you uh, help us live that resurrected life this week by your holy spirit just fill us And let others see you in us. And not that we just do good works to be good people, but that, God, these good works are because we're alive um, and truly alive and resurrected in you. So, God, come soon. We look forward to your kingdom. But, God, this week, if you would bring people on our path that we might share with, help us, God, to be faithful to that. In Jesus' name, amen.